Thanks, John, for uh, leading in prayer and reading. And as John mentioned uh, in his prayer, we've been blessed with uh, having the Radwin family with us, that we've been uh, privileged to help as uh, refugees from Ukraine, and our, our help is going to be needed for a while. So if you are currently not uh, involved in that, but would like to be involved in that, you can email me and say, hey, how can I help out? Um, or, or, or let Kate know, uh, as we, uh, we anticipate that there's going to be needs upcoming that we can all help out with. Uh, but we're very thankful that right now, things are, uh, things are going really well. Sandra and Yazin uh, went to school this week, and at least their report to me was that it was fun. So that's good. And Ryan obviously teaches at the same school, and he's been able to check in on them, and he says that uh, they both seem to be smiling a lot, from what he can tell. So that's good. Uh, and uh, Lord willing, um, the older, the older, like the parents and uh, Zane will be able to uh, start English classes very soon. We have a, a meeting tomorrow uh, to get that underway. Uh, John also mentioned that uh, this story is very familiar to a lot of us, and that's absolutely true. Um, this story is familiar to many, many people, whether they're Christians or not. Uh, they know about the story of David and Bathsheba. We were going to start uh, Grace Valley Breakout, and we said, let's not start today. That would be hard on the teachers, given the, the story that is before us, because it is, it is quite an astounding story, really. Uh, I said, I think, last week that uh, up until now, as we've been studying the life of King David, uh, this guy's been awesome. We've seen this king who is everything you want in a leader, right? He is, he is convicted, he, he has conviction, but at the same time, he is very gracious with people. He, is, uh, he shows strength, but also mercy. He is, he is both fierce and gentle. He is the kind of leader that we all deep down actually long for. He's our hero, our hero king. But... I also said everything was about to change, and that's the story that we come across today. David, he, he falls, and he falls hard. Now, we're going to get to this story in a minute, but I want to I point something out to you, first of all, that I think is, is worth considering. King David is revered not just by Christians, but he is revered by Jews as well, as the greatest king of the Old Testament. This story is, is 3,000 years old, but it is told and retold over and over again, both in the Christian faith and in the Jewish faith. And what is remarkable is how open and honest this story is about the flaws of this most revered king. Because what you need to know is that ancient literature, when it told biographies of great individuals in the life of a nation, they always glorified them. The point was to, to raise this person up and say, this is how awesome our king is. He is, he is godlike. He is uh, masterful. He is amazing. And very rarely will you ever hear about the bad things, so to speak, that a king uh, may have done. But right here before us, we have a story that shows David at his worst. We see his flaws. We see his shortcomings. It is all on display for the world to see, and it is put down on paper, and it is told and retold over and over and over and over and over again. What's up with that? Here's what's up with that. This book 
is different. This book is not like the great books of many of the great religions of the world, which are human reflections on the nature of being, the existence of God, the purpose of why we're here, etc. It's not a story about our search for God. This is God's word to us. That's what makes it different. And it tells the truth about us. There are many ways of sort of summarizing the story of the Bible. And one of the ways you can summarize the story of the Bible is this. God continually and repeatedly and persistently works with people in giving them his grace to people who don't deserve it, who don't look for it, and then when they get it, they don't really appreciate it. And that's because the story of the Bible is the story of God coming to individuals, the human race of people who don't overcome their sinful tendencies and their flaws, who can't overcome their sinful tendencies and their flaws, their selfishness, but who, if they cling to God over their entire lives, they ultimately will triumph. This is one of the ways of understanding the storyline of the Bible. And this story that we're looking at right now, it is an example of that. David is what you would call a good man, from a human perspective, who does a lot of bad. And one of the purposes of this story being in Scripture is to teach you and me that we are all capable of tremendous falls from grace. A couple weeks ago, I think it was, Mark said that one of the things we like to, to talk about here, or like, I don't know if he said it's one of the things we like to talk about here, but one of the things we do talk about here is the bad news of the gospel. The bad news of the gospel is this. You and I are more sinful, more prone to wickedness than we are willing to admit. That's the bad news of the gospel. Now, the good news of the gospel is that at exactly the same time as, that, as you are more wicked than you're willing to admit, at exactly the same time as that's true, you are also more loved, more cherished, more delighted in, more cared about than you could ever dare hope. Well, I have the auspicious task of talking about the first part to you this morning, the bad news of the gospel. Because this story is, is really one big story that encompasses not just 2 Samuel 11, but also 2 Samuel 12. Next week, Mark is going to talk about the second half, the good news of the gospel, that you are more loved and cherished than you ever dared hope. I get to talk to you this morning about how you are more wicked than you're ever willing to admit. Lucky me, huh? But if you, if you don't, if you leave today, I hope you won't leave today like, completely bummed out. I do hope you'll leave today a little bit overwhelmed by what the Bible has to say about human nature. But if you, if you leave today and you don't come back next week, you will miss out on how beautiful 
The gospel is because it is against the relief of the darkness of our human hearts that the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God's goodness and kindness and grace to us is most profound. It is most pronounced. The best way to see something black is to see it up against something white, right? The contrast. Well, the best way for us to see the majesty and the glory of the gospel is to see it against the contrast of our need for that gospel. So we got to go through today to get through next week. So here we go. We're going to go through today. We're going to see this morning how sin works in our lives. How sin works in our lives. And in many ways, actually, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, which was part of our time of confession, is a commentary on 2 Samuel 11 and the story of David and Bathsheba. Listen to what James chapter 1 says. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is, fully, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Those verses are a commentary on the story that we're going to look at today. So let's, let's look at this and see the progression of sin, how it works in our lives. So, first of all, point one, the seed of sin is our evil desires. That's from James 1, 14, right? Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. What's he talking about? Well, in verse 1 of this story, we read that David's uh, army has gone out to war at the time when nations go to war. This is, this is the time of year. I know this sounds weird to us as modern people, but this is the time of year where you go and fight other nations. But David, he stays at home. Now, some scholars say that that's already the first mistake that David made, that he is, he is shirking his responsibilities. He's not leaving with the army. But I think that that's probably overplaying things a little bit because Joe, this is not a big war that they're fighting right now. Uh, David has been involved in many battles beforehand. Joab is a very accomplished general in his army. He can handle things. So David stays at Jerusalem. And it's nighttime, and he goes out on his roof, and everybody had flat roofs at the time, and it was very common to sleep on your roof, especially during the hot part of the year. And David is out on his roof, and because he's the king living in his palace, his roof is higher than everybody else's roof, right? He's got a bigger house than everybody else has. And he looks around, and he sees this beautiful woman who's bathing. Now, at this point, David has not sinned. He wasn't looking for something in particular. His eyes just fell upon uh, this woman who was bathing naked. But here's the thing. He doesn't look away right away either. He doesn't go, whoa, whoops, I'm not supposed to see that and go inside or go back to another, uh, another part of his roof or anything. No, what does he do? He watches. He gazes. And essentially, he begins to lust. Now, this has not come up in our telling the story of David up to this point. We haven't talked about this yet, but there's something you should know. David has always had a significant problem in his life, and that is he has trouble with the opposite sex. You see, David had eight wives, and he also had at least ten concubines. 
And you might say, well, polygamy, you know, that was common in that kind of uh, era, etc. Uh, that's true. But if you look at all the uh, examples of polygamy happening, for those of you who don't know, polygamy is having more than one spouse, more than one wife. If you look at all the examples of it in the Old Testament, it always goes really, really badly because God only tolerated polygamy. He never actually endorsed polygamy. And in Deuteronomy 17, God specifically says that kings are not to practice polygamy. But David did. Why? Well, because like a lot of men, David struggled with his sexual desires. He was enticed by his evil desires. He wanted pleasure, or he was looking for variety, or he was hoping for frequency of sexual con uh, uh, experience. He had this appetite that he needed, in his mind anyway, to, to be fulfilled. Now here's the point. Yes, sexual temptation is huge for men. But more importantly, I want us to see that this is how sin works. It springs from within. Where does sin come from? Where is it born? It's born from inside of us, not outside of us. John White is a, is a Christian counselor who wrote a, a great book on fighting sin. And he says, you know, if you go to a piano, uh, like a grand piano, and you open the grand piano, and you sing a specific note, you can make that the wire in that piano vibrate without touching the keys. You go, ah, and it will start to vibrate because you have sung the same note as that piano key. And John White's point is this. This is exactly how Satan works on us. We have sinful desires. We have longings, and Satan comes along, and he doesn't put those things in us. They're there. He knows how to sing the note. He knows how to, to pluck the wire, to, to, to push the key. That's how Satan operates. And that's why, why James says that we are dragged away by our own sinful desires. There's, there's actually no, the devil made me do it. We use that kind of language in our culture, but that actually doesn't fit the biblical picture. All the devil can do is, is work with what he's got. And what he's got, sorry to tell you, friends, is this seed of sinful desire that exists in all of us. It takes different forms and different people, but we all got it. And he cultivates it. Now, let me apply this very quickly before we go on. When you look at your self-pity, when you look at your resentment, when you look at your enviousness, or your, I guess it's just envy, you look at your envy, you look at your hurt pride, you look at that and you think to yourself, well, it's, it's a small thing, it's not a big thing, I haven't, let it, I haven't let it get away from me, and you tolerate it. What you're showing is, is that you don't understand the, the power of the sin. You look at what happened to David and you say, I'm not capable of what he did. That guy committed adultery and then he committed murder to cover it up. I'm not capable of that. You don't understand the power of sin or your capacity to commit sin. Did you know that when the Nazis, when the Nazis uh, 
perpetrated the Holocaust and their concentration camps were uh, becoming more known in the world, there were more rumors happening that this is what the Nazis were doing. Did you know that many of the world leaders said, no, 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 that can't be true. They didn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. And you know why? They said, this is Germany. This is a modern, cultured, sophisticated people. They gave us Bach. They gave us Mozart. They gave us Hegel and Schopenhauer. This couldn't happen. Why? Because they didn't, they weren't willing to admit that within each human heart, there is a capability for sin that, that if cultivated properly, can do outlandish things. Do you think David thought he was capable of such incredible sin? It started with a look. It just started with a gaze. And it ended in murder. Did he have any idea that it would be doing that? This is why John Owen, who is a wonderful Puritan writer, says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We've got to take it seriously, folks. We've got to admit what's actually there. Now, that's the first thing. The first thing is, is the seed of evil, of sin, or sorry, the seed of sin is our evil desires. Okay? What's the next step? Well, let's look at James again. He says, one fifteen. he says something very interesting. One fifteen. then after desire has conceived, so desire conceives sin. This is the next step. What does that mean? Well, David, in our story, he doesn't just look, right? He doesn't just look and then turn away and forget about it. No, he entertains a thought. In verse 3, we read, David sent someone to find out about her. He's curious. Who's that good-looking girl on that roof? I'd like to know. And so he entertains a thought about it. Why would he want to know who that is? He's already thinking about what he's going to do. That's why. He doesn't just say, come on. He's not like, hey, find out who that girl is and tell her to cover up. That's not what David's thinking. And so the, the guy comes back and he reports and he goes, David, she's married. Oh, and she's married to Uriah the Hittite. Things should have ended right there. David knows what adultery is. He knows that if he pursues things with her, he will be committing adultery. He will be breaking God's law. Furthermore, he knows that he'll be betraying a friend. Remember, we talked about this before, I think. Uriah the Hittite was one of what, what was called David's mighty men. David had a group of soldiers who were the elite. They were the best of the best. They were the Navy SEALs, okay? They were JTF2, or whatever you want to call the Canadian version of that. And these guys were committed to David. And when he was on the run from Saul, they went with him. And then when he finally came back, they all settled down. But then he had to flee from his son. And they took off with him again. And they sacrificed much of their own career and stability prospects to be with David. They went through thick and thin. There's this story. It's so cool where David is in Jerusalem and the Philistines have, have, um, have occupied the town of Bethlehem. And David says, oh man, I just wish I could get a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem. And he just says it as a throwaway line. Three of his mighty men, they sneak behind 
enemy lines, they go to the well, they get a cup of water, they bring it back to David. These, these guys are incredible. And you know, if you've ever been through thick and thin with someone, through hardship, through pain, it bonds you, right? These are, these are, his, these are his closest friends. He is more close to them than he is to his own family, to his own brothers. And David is willing to betray this man. Why? Because David is cultivating the seed. He entertains the thought. He feeds his desire. And that leads to the next step, giving birth. Once again, James 1 verse 15. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, you might say to yourself, well, is, is, David's, is, is James saying that it's only sin when you act out on something? That's not what James... What James is trying to say. In verse 4, David takes what he wants, right? It says in verse 4, Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. So now, yes, he has acted. But we're not saying, James is not saying that that's the time where he sinned. That if he was thinking about it, it wasn't sin. But when he does it, it is sin. Think about the analogy that Paul is using. He's the analogy of life. And so as soon as you conceive a life, as soon as you conceive a life in a woman's womb, that life is a life. It doesn't change and become a life once it's born, right? That baby is a baby from the moment of conception after the moment of birth. It's the same living being. That's what the pro-life argument is against abortion. This is a human life. And so what James is actually getting at and what this sh story is actually showing us is that sin doesn't actually satisfy desire, it actually only awakens it. See, his desire is the fire, and the act is the fuel on the desire. What I'm trying to tell you is, is don't think that, that when you commit a sin, that that's going to satisfy your sinful desire and you'll stop. You know how many men think that if they will just get married, that they'll no longer have trouble with pornography? And it's never true. All it does, they think that, well, now I'll have an outlet for my sexual desire, and therefore I won't look at pornography anymore. And actually, the highest demographic of people who look at pornography are married men, not single men, believe it or not. Because all sinful action can do is awaken desire and create this cycle. Why do you think Solomon says, he says in Proverbs 4, verse 23, he says, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And later on, Jesus himself says, out of the heart comes all kinds of evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander, because the heart is the control center of the will. It's not just the seat of the emotions. It's, it's the seat of your volition. My point here is this. Circumstances, which is what we often look to as the cause of our sinfulness, circumstances are not the cause of our sin. I'm not sinning because of, my, of the pressures of life or because someone has treated me poorly or because my job sucks or because I've experienced loss or depression. All those things can do is aggravate it. Thanks, Grace. Grace has something in here. I hope it's water. Yep, it's water. 
If I take this cup and I shake this cup, what come out, comes out of it? Water. Why did water come out of it? You say, because you shook it. Ah, but why did water come out of it? Because water is in it. This is a powerful illustration, not my own, I wish, because it's like my favorite. This is a powerful illustration of the fact that sin comes from within. All circumstances can do is aggravate our sin. It can't actually produce it in us. Okay. It starts with desire. It leads to conception. It climaxes in action. And finally, it leads to death. James says in 1 verse 15 again, he says, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, if you haven't really been interested and haven't been listening so far, I hope you will now, because we're talking about the most central thing in existence, and that is life and death. See, when you give in to sinful temptation, right, it creates new temptations, and it drags you into other sins that you had not planned. David was a man of integrity. He was. And here we see him trying now to deceive, right? He's trying to deceive Uriah, getting Uriah to go to his house and sleep with his wife, cover up the fact that he's, he's uh, slept with her himself. He doesn't want to kill Uriah. He just wants to cover it up. But as Walter Scott says, oh, what tangled webs we weave when first we practice to deceive. One of the great things about always telling the truth is you don't have to remember what you said. But if you lie, you got to remember because you got to keep the lie going because you don't want to get caught. So his trick fails. David's trick fails. He devises to kill him. Joab, the, the, the general of his army, complies with the whole thing. He's complicit in it. So now you're dragging other people into your sin. Bathsheba goes through her mourning period. Then she comes and marries David. And it seems like nobody's the wiser, right? It seems like nobody's the wiser, except the very last verse says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, this is the first and only time in this entire chapter that God is mentioned. Why is that? Because the author is showing us something. He's showing us something. You know what the root of all sin essentially is big sins small sins everything in between it's our tendency and our desire to say i am sovereign i am in charge i will decide what to do what is right and what is wrong essentially saying i am god you notice that god isn't mentioned in the story at all but what is david doing he's doing a lot of sending sends this, sends this messenger there, find out that, sends for Bathsheba, she comes, sends for Uriah, he comes, sends Uriah back with a messenger and a letter to Joab, send this to Joab, send, send Joab's messenger back to me. It's all designed to, to get us to notice that what David is trying to do is, is he's trying to play God. He's the sovereign, he's the one in charge. See, 
he sees Bathsheba. He finds out she's married. And he says to himself, but I won't be happy without her. I gotta have her. Yes, God has said you should not commit adultery, but if I won't be happy without her, that means that if I obey God, I won't be happy. If I obey God, I will be miserable. I, miserable. I, will, I will miss out. My life won't be everything I hoped it would be. And essentially he says, I know better than God what will make me happy. And he doesn't do that out loud. And he might not be doing it even like consciously, like thinking it through consciously. It, it comes almost just, well, it comes from that seed. It just happens. That's what we're doing. But behind it all, he's basically saying, I know better than God what's good for me. And this is the very same thing human beings have been doing since the beginning. Eve is in the garden and she looks at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And she remembers that God said, don't eat from it. And then the serpent comes along and he goes, really? Are you sure you shouldn't eat from it? You won't die. You will be like God. You will know good and evil. And what he means by saying you will know good and evil is that you will be the one to determine what is good and what is evil. It's not that Adam and Eve walked around the garden going, I don't know what's bad and I don't know what's good. I'm supposed to pet a dog, not kick a dog. I don't know which one's good and which one's bad. No, they knew which was good and which was bad. But Satan is telling them that you can be the ones to decide which is good and which is bad. And friends, this is in all of our hearts. Every time we sin, we're basically telling God, I know better. And not only that, we're acting like there is no God. At least that's what David is doing, right? He tries to cover it up because he thinks if nobody knows, then I get away with it. Hey, kids, can you, can you totally relate to this, right? Like, if mom doesn't catch me, or if dad doesn't notice, I know, I'm not supposed to have juice in the living room because that's the fancy room, but I took juice in the living room and then I spilled it on the carpet. So now what do I got to do? I got to move the coffee table over that spot. Because if mom doesn't know, then the problem goes away. But it ain't so. It ain't true. As long as my friends don't find out or the church doesn't find out or my coworkers don't find out, my wife, my husband, my whatever... We're acting like there's no God, but as the last verse says, it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God sees everything. He doesn't just watch passively over this world. He is involved in this world. He acts in this world, and consequences for David's actions are going to come. We're going to see them unfold in the coming weeks, but listen to this. This one act had such an effect on David's life that anybody who ever talked about him afterwards in the Bible, they cannot help but mention it. So 1 Kings 15 verse 3 says this, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything the Lord had commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. One dark blot. Great story, hey? Great sermon, hey? 
aren't you feeling super uplifted and encouraged? Well, I warned you. I warned you beforehand. And nobody got up and left. So, you know, you wanted to hear it. So how do, how do we close this? Like, we need some grace. And Mark's going to really highlight it for us next week. But let me, let me give us a taste of grace before we close this way. Remember, we're, we're going to end where we began. This story is a picture of God's people. This is who we are. Okay? But, who is God? He is the one who relentlessly pursues people like David, people like you, people like me, who are capable of things we, we don't even want to dare think possible. He pursues us. One writer puts it this way, if we're going to take the Bible witness seriously, we must acknowledge that it was in this history and through these very humans and often clay-footed characters that God worked his redemptive history and it was to this history and to no other that he sent his Christ. This is what he's saying. God sent Jesus Christ, his son, to this kind of people, to David's, to Paul's, to Mark's, to you, people who are seriously flawed, who are failures, who are falling and failing, who aren't keeping it together, who are actually, if we would just peel back the layers a little bit, are train wrecks. That's who he comes to, you and me. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus didn't die for you because you're lovely. He died for you knowing that you're anything but. And yet he died because he wants to make you lovely. Now, how does he do that? Well, first of all, by causing you to realize how serious that sin in your life is. And not going directly to, hokey doodle, I better stop. Or I'm in trouble. No, 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 no. You skipped a step. The next step is seeing not just the size of your sin, but the, oh, I don't have a cross up there. But the, yes, I do. But the size of the cross. The size of the sacrifice. One old minister said, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. Not just so that you'll go, okay, I'm forgiven. Whew, don't have to pay for that. Great. No, so that you'll see how astoundingly expansive his love for you is that while you were still a sinner, he died for you. That's the penny that's got to drop. And when that penny drops, you know what? That's when you'll start saying, I want no part of sin. I'm going to fight it. I know it's like cancer, and I am going to do radiation on it day by day by calling upon my Savior to rescue me again and again and again from my sin. Let's pray. Father, what a story. What a story. And that you would include it in your word to teach us of our sin, but especially of your grace. Thank you.
for this story. May it move us, Father. May it move us to seek you with all our hearts and then to follow you with all our conviction and find joy in that because that's where joy ultimately is found. It does not lead to death. It leads to life. In your son's name we pray. All right, so we've got a couple of minutes for questions. My number, my number is on the screen behind me. You can text it to me if you have fast fingers. If you have a question and you have, uh, you're okay with just raising your hand and asking it, feel free to do that too. I want to give you an opportunity to, to ask any questions for clarification or expansion that might be, might be helpful. Sure, Ruben, go ahead. How was justice done to Uriah? That's a great question. Amazing guy who was murdered. Well, a couple ways. One, his righteousness is recorded in the word of God. So here we are 3,000 years later talking about this righteous Uriah the Hittite. So there's a legacy there, at least for us who are still here. Two, interestingly enough, in Matthew chapter 1, we read of Jesus' genealogy. And there are several women mentioned in there. Bathsheba is mentioned in there, but not as Bathsheba as Uriah's wife. So the, the spotlight actually shines on the righteous Uriah in that moment, not the, and, and we can get into like, was Bathsheba complicit in this at all or not? But that is like a long debate. That's for coffee time, okay? Um, so there's that way. And then there's the gospel promise way, which is, you know, the Bible teaches that, that your righteous acts will be on display and rewarded at the judgment. And so he will experience justice and vindication on the last day as well as through what we've discovered in Scripture. But that's something that he's got to wait for. You and I are never going to enter the Bible, just so you know. Your stories are not going to enter the Bible. But you have the same promise too. That, that when you can't get justice on this side of the judgment, you will get justice and vindication on the other side of the judgment. That doesn't mean necessarily that the person who perpetrated a sin against you is going to be judged because if they're a believer, Christ has faced the judgment for them, okay? And you will be satisfied with that because Christ's judgment paid for your sin too. As awesome as Uriah was, he was not perfect. And so he needed the same Savior David did. I'm not going to ask if that was good enough because I got more questions is being tempted a sin? Oh, great question. Okay, you know what? I'm going to have to talk about this on my podcast, I think. Because there's two... There's, ex, there's external temp, temptation and there's internal temptation. What happens with David and what James is talking about when he says God cannot tempt or be tempted, he's talking about how we are actually tempted by our 
evil desires. We have desires in us that tempt us to act on those desires. And those temptations are sinful in and of themselves. But then there are external temptations that are not uh, sinful in themselves. They're thrown at you by the devil from outside, and your response to that temptation will be either sinful or not. Remember that whole devil singing to your tune? Most of the time, the temptations that the devil comes at you with are rooted in your desire. Because he's smart. He's not stupid. He knows what he's looking for. He's looking to trip you up. He's looking to cause you to fall. And the best way to do that is not to try to put something in you, but to get what's in you out. So that's how he operates most of the time. I am getting so many questions. This is awesome. Wouldn't it be considered adultery to sleep with Bathsheba even if she was unmarried? For David, yes, it would have been. Um, but an old term that would have been used to describe that is fornication. That's what would have been her sin. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm being asked a question about the dynamic here between David. Because this is a power dynamic, right? David's the king. He says, Bathsheba, come to my, come to my house. What's she going to say? Oh no, like we, we know that they that this is that there are power structures at play here. Maybe I can get to this stuff in a podcast as well. I can't talk to you about it now. Um, why do we not call it an assault? We might. Right? But that could be uh, because of cultural evolution, right? We we understand better how these power, how, we look at these power di- dynamics differently than we would uh, in, in the culture in which it was was perpetrated. And that's not, to, that's not to excuse the culture in which it was perpetrated. It's just to acknowledge that, that they were at a different place. Just like polygamy was common and it was expected back then, we would say that it's wrong, that it's sinful, and that it's unhealthy and destructive, but it was common in that culture. And just because it's called adultery in this passage, it says that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. It it doesn't really, and this is what scholars talk about, it doesn't really give a moral, it doesn't give a moral category to Bathsheba's involvement, unfortunately. So I can't speak more to that. There's a couple more here. Uh, I'm going to talk, I'm going to, text those answers because what we're going to do now is we're going to go to the table and if any of those questions that people asked were you need to follow up feel free to text me and i'll i'll get back to you later today probably